0: Welcome back to the Project 24 blogging podcast. This is episode 202. All right, well, hopefully you listened to the previous episode, episode 201, because it'll make a lot more sense if you did. So go back and listen to that first and then listen to this one. We're talking about... CamperReport.com, And uh, what we've done is looked back at what you all were doing at the time. That website has been sold, obviously, three years ago now, basically. But we wanted to talk about what we think about what we did. Well, what you all did. I wasn't here at the time, uh, quite. But what you all did at the time, what your thoughts were on that. And then looking back at what we know now with what we know now, maybe what could you have changed or what would you wish you had known back then, among other things. So we've got some points here from some episodes that we did back then, and it was a, a season. So we did the first four episodes in the, the previous blogging podcast, and now we're going to be doing the last four Uh, episodes of that season back then we're going to talk about all of those points. All right so the first one is episode five in season one and we talk about the recommended products page and how we implemented it on camper report a year and a half after the site was launched. So what are your thoughts on that now?
1: Yeah so um, the recommended products page was something that we taught As one of the 60 steps early on. It was like, do this. Everybody do this. Later, we removed it and we talked about it more as a recommendation. And for a while, it was kind of not there. And now I still think it's a good idea. So what this was is you create a page on your website where you can list essentially the main products you recommend. So in the affiliate course today, we talk about our four different strategies, right? You know, one of those strategies is to essentially have Certain products that you use regularly and that can show up regularly in your content, and that we're going to recommend throughout the site. These aren't like the kinds of things where, on Camper Report, I remember an article where it was like 27, I don't remember the number, but like 27 accessories you're going to need when you get a camper. And you're going to need a white drinking water hose. They don't come with one, and everybody needs one. Mm -hmm. And I don't really care which one you buy. Like, Here's a link to one on Amazon. Mm-hmm. This one's good enough. Right. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking more about like, here is a specific product. Here's a, you know, my favorite generator for campers. Um, and here are all the reasons why. So that's what we would recommend. And so on that page, we might have, we might just have a list of five products, but over time you might turn that page into more of a product categories page. Right. And then, so you might have a, a nice image with text that's like generators, and then you might have another one for, you know, just RV accessories, and maybe there you will list out the, you know, or maybe you'll even just link to that one article that went through the 27 accessories. So you might just have a nice, well-designed page with nice image kind of blocks that are, that link out to the different categories, right? And then on each category, you might have a generators page where you say, this is my favorite generator for this purpose, but... You know, a lot of people don't need one this big. So get this smaller inverter generator because it's really quiet and it's it's awesome or whatever. And so you'll have maybe two or three different ones. And on that page, you're going to explain, here's who it's for and why I recommend it. If you want to see an example of this, by the way, you can go to incomeschool.com slash tools and we do the same thing. We have a bunch of different categories. And then mm-hmm. on each one, if you click on it, it's going to take you to a page and it's going to say, um, here's the product, you know, here's who it's for and why we recommend it. And then we also have a little section that where we usually say, and what do we think they could do better? So it's, it's like us saying, we don't think these products are necessarily perfect, and this is what we would recommend to, to them, but we still recommend it. It's still a good product, and here's why. And those are affiliate links. This recommended products page is awesome because you can, you can link to it at any point in time, and if you, if you change your recommended generator because the old one is no longer made or whatever, um, or there's just a better one out, you just have to replace it there, the link there, and rewrite the explanation there. Whereas if all of your affiliate links are spread throughout your blog posts, then you can end up doing a ton of updating. So it, it is a good strategy. At the time of this, we often recommended to people to put most of your affiliate links on that page and link to that page from your article. So, if you had a uh, recommended generators page, then if I mentioned a generator, I would say, and, "and here I explain more about this generator and why I like it." Click here, and it wouldn't be an affiliate link; it would take them to that page. Now I see, and really we changed that strategy a while ago <clears throat> because there's a trade-off: the more clicks people have to make before they actually get to the product, in a lot of cases, the less likely they are to follow through and end up buying it. So. Now, what my recommendation would be, and here's what I would do differently, is if I'm talking about a very specific product, a specific generator in an article, I'm going to link to that generator from the article to the affiliate link, and I'm going to make my case for why they should buy it and send them straight there. If I'm talking more generically, like generators comes up as an aspect that I'm discussing in this article, then I'd say, oh, and by the way, here I outline my favorite generators for for all these different specific uses. Go check that out if you're looking for the right generator for you. There, I'm going to guide you through which one to get. So you can see, if you're talking more broadly about a type of product, send them to your recommended products page. If you're talking about a very specific product, make the case, send them straight to it. So that's kind of how that strategy has changed over time. It worked on Camper Report. Um, it was it was effective. We Camper Report used to do a thousand dollars a month in affiliate, um, just from like Amazon. It did most of its earnings from ads. <laughs> <laughs> and so we, we could have pushed that harder. Um, but it was an effective thing to do. And I still think it's a good, a good useful tool. Um, just keep it up to date. Uh, it's also fantastic when you go, if you're interviewed on a podcast or you have a, a YouTube channel and you, um, you know, you want to send people from the YouTube channel over to see your recommendations, uh, That can be a great way to keep it organized.
2: Yeah, I see this, especially now, kind of the shift here. One of the probably largest values here is the shifting away from commodity. Yeah. Um, You mentioned being on podcasts or on YouTube videos. Well back at the point where we were really running camp Report, and I say running, it was pretty passive. Um, And I think that's probably why, um, in part, it did so much better on ads than it did Affiliate, because ads just do better generally passively. right? Um, Whereas Affiliate will take... uh, The more active you are, probably the better it's going to be. There
1: wasn't like an active following. We had like eight YouTube videos, and they were not
2: subscribable. Right. And so at this point, you know, if we were to take that and really make it a a non-commodity really helpful, active brand. Yeah. I think that that's especially where the, um, you know, recommended tools or recommended products page can be really valuable because people at that point, they're more interested in what you, you, yourself, what you have to say about the product. Um, and, the, and they're going to be more likely to engage with those products. And so, whereas uh, just a, a simple link in an article, if it's something they're already looking for, definitely might they might click through to it. But if they want to read more about what you think about the product, having a place for that I think is really, really valuable. So I think that now we really, and that's one of our big focuses now, uh, talking about you know EEAT and decommoditizing your content, especially in the face of AI and all these different things. Um, I think having this resource is, is great for, um, in preparation for building an audience that cares more about you and the brand I say you, I mean the brand than just the topic itself. Yeah, totally.
0: Awesome. All right. Moving on to the next podcast of this uh, season back then. So (laughs) (laughs) we covered seasonality and what we did to combat low earnings in the off season. Camping has a strong season, but that doesn't have to mean we don't earn an income in the off month. Sorry, I skipped one. Uh, that was the third, <laughs> but we will go back to that uh, that other episode. So let's just talk about seasonality yeah, right totally. now.
1: Yeah, um, camper report was one where early on, we definitely saw strong seasonality, but not as much as we would have expected. And part of that is just because we realized in the winter people are making plans or they're just like, they're curious, like, you know, maybe I want to buy a camper for this next year it's November, but I'm going to start shopping around now. So I want to start, I'm going to ask questions, um, learn about what I need. And so we saw that some articles did well. So what we did to help combat those low earnings, and I think this is is what everybody needs to be doing. If you have seasonality in your niche, first of all, we can find ways to get around seasonality by creating content that is geared toward the off-season. But also sometimes we just need to think a little bit outside the box. So like in this case, there were some articles that were obvious that made sense. It was like, okay, well, for the late fall, let's talk about RV winterization. Let's talk about RV storage. Um, let's talk about getting your RV ready in the spring, like some of those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. But there's only so much. In fact, we even had some articles about like the best RVs for cold weather camping because there's some RVs with better insulation and stuff and that are just kind of made to be able to um, take out and you could just mm-hmm. literally camp year round in them. But, and those did really well in the off season for sure. But we also found that other articles did really well, too. Articles around finding the right RV Mm -hmm. to buy. Um, And two, articles just around planning trips. It's not uncommon that people get those kind of winter blues and they're just, I mean, I've already booked my um, big family trip for this year, uh, partly because if you don't book it, like, by the end of January you're just not going to find a place. Especially in Idaho. People are planning
0: months ahead.
1: But like, you know, we're planning a trip to um, the coast in Northern California. We want to go see the redwoods and we love the ocean too. So we're going to go there. And so it's like January hits and we're like, it's dark, especially here in Idaho. Yeah. (laughs) It gets very dark. You need something to look forward to. And so it's like, we start looking at ocean houses. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) where are we going to stay this year? Yeah. Um, And we start planning those trips. Well, People do the same thing for, and Anna's and totally right. Literally campsites are all booked. Mm-hmm. Like now, they're all booked yeah. out. <laughs> so yeah, I know some
0: open up the registration like January yeah, 1st right. for the summer. And I think I was looking last year uh, for camping spots and they were gone. Yeah. Like by the end of January, February. So what you had to look for is um, first come, first serve basically yeah. by the summer. So people are planning their trips. Yeah.
1: So we found that if we created content that was geared toward the questions people ask when it's planning time, that we got a lot of traffic. And the cool thing was, like, we did see a dip in affiliate earnings. People aren't buying stuff for their camper as much in the winter. The camper's in storage. They're not buying as much camping gear unless they're, like, into hunting. And then November is a huge month. But other than that, like, people just weren't buying stuff on the website. But um, we were able to keep the traffic up and November and December were fantastic months for ad revenue. And so what we found was our monetization stayed level Mm -hmm. and we were able to consistently earn almost like within, I mean, we were averaging around $10,000 a month on that website and we stayed probably within $500 of that per month, like year round for the last couple of years. Because we had that kind of traffic, that kind of um, content that drove traffic year round.
0: Yeah.
2: I really like this example. I just think that there's a lot of, we've talked about seasonality here fairly recently on the podcast. And I think a lot of people, when they're considering a niche, they take this into some serious consideration. And a a lot of times, even if it's something that they're most interested in, they'll end up going with something else because they're worried about seasonality. When in reality, there's definitely ways to get around it. And that's not to say there's definitely some niches that are much more seasonal than others. Uh-huh. Um, but that doesn't mean that it has to be 100% in the summer and then 0% in the winter. Maybe right. it's 100% in the summer and 50% in the winter. Like You can definitely make it hurt a little bit less.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'd be a little more careful if you're like making a website about a sport that has a very narrow season. Right. But most sports have people playing it year-round. Or at least for a much wider portion of the year, even if that's not, even if the professional season is shorter, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's like basketball, professional basketball, college basketball, and high school basketball, they overlap, but they're not perfectly the same season, right? Baseball, somebody's playing baseball basically year-round. There's leagues, you know, like we can take things that seem really seasonal and we can often find, I mean, like water skiing is a little bit harder, But there's probably somebody in Arizona water skiing right now.
0: (laughs) Right. Exactly. Yeah. And back to the camper example, Uh, we have a camper. We actually share it with my uh, brother-in-law and sister-in-law and But we don't really use it all that often, maybe a Uh couple times a summer. So recently, and maybe this wasn't as big of a thing back then, but we rent it out to people for their weekends. And it's pretty much booked out all summer long. So that could be a topic for uh, a website like this now. Another thing is because we don't use it so much, we're thinking of renting a camper ourselves and selling the camper we have. Yeah. And it's kind of like the housing market, you know, in the spring, summer, I think people are buying yeah. more than oh, yeah, um, like sure. fall, winter. So people are obviously looking at a better price. And uh-huh. so they're wondering when is a good time to buy a camper. And so you can talk good about point. that winter yep. most likely, right? So. Yeah.
1: The best time to buy is going to be late fall throughout the winter Yeah, um, in terms of getting the best price.
0: Yeah. Absolutely.
1: So totally content around buying, especially like buying used, but even buying new ones. There's, yeah, there's plenty of content yeah. that you could,
0: you could yep. put out. And how to rent my camper out or how do yep. I rent a camper? So, yeah, I don't, I think that was how long ago? Three years ago now yeah, that it was sold. Years. So I'm not so sure that was a big thing or maybe yeah, that it was, it was just starting. Getting um,
1: and there was an affiliate program that we were part of that. I mean, we we did a little bit with, I definitely, we could have pushed it more if we'd put more time into it um but it was fairly new.
0: Yeah. All right. So, we go back now to the <laughs> to the second part here. So, we talk about how we hired new writers for Camper Report, following the exact process we teach in Project 24. You get a feel for just how many applicants you need in order to get just a few good writers for your site.
1: Yeah. So basically what we did was we put a little banner across the top of the site that was just like, write for camper report. And so literally the people who were reading content on our site were invited to apply to come write for us, which was perfect. It was a great way to get people who knew the topic of campers. And so we did end up getting quite a few more applications than we were able to, to fill. And really it took, it took a lot. And You'd have to go listen to the episode. Um, This is the sixth episode of the podcast ever to hear really what the numbers turned out to be. But uh, it took a lot. And it depends a lot on the niche. So, you know, before that, we had hired freelance writers to write some content on Income School. And it took a ton. I mean, and and part of that was because we didn't post on Income School. We posted on a job board over on problogger.com. And so we were getting blog writers. And so we got tons of applications. Most of them didn't follow our instructions at all, which by the way, is a great tip. Give very specific instructions for the application. And when people don't follow them, they fail. (laughs) Because if they can't follow your basic instructions, they are not going to do what you want them to do.
0: And surprisingly, yeah, you would be surprised how many people don't follow the directions.
1: They just want to send their basic, (laughs) standard, canned application, resume, and... um, they wrote one blog post one time that they're using as their um, example content and they just want to send it to you and they want you to review it. And so that one, I mean, it went, we went through a ton of them. In this case, it was not writers for the most part. It was people who had campers and who used their camper. And in a couple of cases, it was people who were either retired or soon to retire who were mostly like living in their camper, like they were traveling, And so we had some people who just, they had free time and they wanted to make a little bit of extra money on the side. And I would have them write an article. Um, Some people wrote like weekly. Most people wrote like every other week they'd submit an article. And these people knew stuff. They took their own pictures of their camper to show like specific things they were illustrating. One guy was doing some modifications um, and he was taking pictures of, I mean, this was good content and it did really well on the site too. So yeah, absolutely, it was a great way to go. And honestly, I think from an EEAT standpoint, that can be a great thing to do. Uh, these writers, I think, if I remember right, we had them writing under their own name in most cases. And I, I think I would do that. I'd create an author persona for them and let them write under their own name and share like, here's my backstory. I I'm traveling the country mm-hmm. in an RV. Cool, that's, I mean- there's no better author than that for this kind of a thing. Um, so if if you're looking to like get a little bit of help, I mean, there's the option to absolutely go hire people like, um, you know, outsource to Content Warrior even, you know, uh, and get some content. But if you really want to build EAT and get somebody who knows the topic well, and you're willing to take the time to manage them, because I had I personally managed all these people at the time. I paid them for their articles. I reviewed the articles that came in. I mean, it was... That was definitely a big part of my work for several months while we did that, but it did a lot to grow that site. I think it was absolutely worth it.
2: You mentioned briefly um, hiring writers in other capacities, and I think that um, this is something, obviously, that we do. Uh, Currently, we have hired writers who write a lot of our content for us, which we then review and publish. Um, And I think there are, again, kind of various reasons why one or the other might be a good idea you know all the content that we get back from our content writers they in i'd say 99.9 percent of cases it will be published under ricky's name maybe my name maybe Mm -hmm. anna's name um because the writer isn't the one who is the person on the blog they are not the one who's air quotes, writing the article Um, and going through articles after they're written, putting in our own voice or putting in the voice that we want, you know, putting in our own anecdotes or examples or life experience, it becomes our article essentially. Um, But I, I, I do really like the model of having people who are super engaged in the industry um, or in whatever topic you are um, participating in because then you don't only have your own experience, but you get the experience of other people, which is something that we've, again, been talking about a lot lately. Like everybody needs human connection. And a lot of people who are reading blogs, a lot of people search for very specific questions, but there's going to be other ways for them to find specific kind of just very information-based questions or answers. It's the human connection element. And, And by having other contributors on your website who are, very engaged or who also have EEAT in that space or could have good EEAT in that space uh, could be really, really valuable. Mm -hmm. Again, working toward um, having a good strong brand.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. If you see a bunch of different authors on a website, I don't know, it just seems kind of random. And uh, for me, it looks kind of skeptical. Like who owns this
1: website? Kind of just depends on the approach. So like if you have a few writers so like in our case, it was like five or six and each one is listed out. Like, yeah, then that's pretty like, that's pretty normal because most, you know, publications of any kind are going to have, it's not like the owner of Newsweek that writes every article. Right. right? Um, and, and I think that's kind of the approach you want to take is yeah. like, this person is a contributor to this yeah. site and here is how they fit in. Maybe, you know, they're not the owner. They're not, but they're, they're a contributor and they're somebody who knows the topic um, but if we were to have all of our writers, and each one writes it's like two articles on this website ever, and there's a hundred authors, that <laughs> you're right, that looks totally sketchy um, to people and to Google.
0: Yep, absolutely. Okay, so uh, the last episode of the season—it's season one, episode eight. Um, we we finished our discussion of CamperReport.com, and at the time we say we'll give updates on earnings, traffic, and hiring and talk about the next steps for Camper Report. Um, and I know we do this. We'll actually be talking about this um, a couple episodes right now, or from here, where we talk about the garage sale where we sell most of our sites. And so we do have some numbers. We got some people who bought the websites um, And we got an update from them at the time. We should check with those people again and get even more recent updates. But we'll talk about camperreport.com. So that's basically it. Next time, we're going to give you a preview uh, or a recap, rather, of the garage sale. And then the following episode after that, we will talk about the garage sale as a whole. (laughs) Yes. All right. Do you all have anything else to add?
2: I don't think so. This is a fun, you know, the whole kind of saga camp report is kind of a fun one. Um, I think it was a great kind of case study to work through. Um, And hopefully some of you who are newer around here who may have not started at the very beginning in the podcast. I know there's so many episodes. It may feel overwhelming to start at episode one. So maybe you started closer to where we are now. So hopefully uh, some of you who never had a chance to hear about it or get some of those inside details have been able to listen to the old episodes and then have had at least some sort of benefit from the these new episodes but it's been fun to kind of uh, go back and see what's changed yeah Um, kind of where we were what things have happened and what we'd recommend now so yeah
0: and as we throw back to these previous early podcast episodes we will put those in the show notes for you so you can refer back to those and listen to what we were doing at the time All right, well, thank you so much for listening to the Projects24 blogging podcast. Have a wonderful day.